Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, Attorney Kim Hegwood with Hegwood Law Group and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning and welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and our very special guest, Andrea Zaiti with A to Z Geriatric Care. She's one of our favorites and referrals uh, sources we send a ton of people to all the time. And so today, welcome, Andrea. We're going to talk about being hospitalized and then what? And so because we have a lot of our clients that are, they end up in the hospital and they call and they go, oh my gosh, here's what's happening. What do we do? You know, and so, you know, so one of the things that we kind of want to back up and kind of start a little bit. And so what are things that you think that people need to have in place prior to even needing to go to the hospital? Hey, thanks for having me again, Kim. I really appreciate it. Um, this is uh, an important uh, topic that I've been working on even pre-COVID, um, talking to my personal clients about the importance of having some plans in place um, and some information well laid out even before um, you have to go to the hospital. Because usually if you're going to the hospital, you're calling 911. Um, and a lot of times you, you find out um, you get to the emergency room with your loved one. Um, let's say you're the daughter or the son and you're taking your elderly parent to the hospital. And you're not even sure what medications they're taking. Um, what uh, is it, what exactly has have, have they discussed with the doctors in the recent past? So uh, I think it's very important um, to have some things in place uh, even before you go um, have to go to the hospital. And we all know that when you come into the hospital setting um, emergently. You're going to sit in the in the emergency room, likely, especially now during COVID for a while. And then um, going to the emergency room when you're very sick can be very frightening to somebody, particularly with dementia. Um, and it can be very frustrating for you as a caregiver and frustrating to the patient. They're out of their element. Um, and uh, when somebody becomes seriously ill, even if they're not um, showing signs of dementia prior to illness, uh, you can become so ill that you are really disoriented yourself. So you can't really properly advocate for yourself in a hospital situation. So what I like to tell people to do is if they have especially a chronic health condition, we want you to um, begin a documentation process. And what I like to tell my families and what I do for my own uh, families that I work with and my patients is I develop a three ring binder. And in that binder is gonna be all your pertinent information. So we, st we like to start with um, the very basics, your name, your address, your phone number, your date of birth. Um, we want to know who is your next of kin. And if you do have a medical power of attorney, which you and I both know that that is critical, um, and we, we both advocate for that with all of the people we talk to, you have to have that document 
um, a copy of that in this notebook as well as any advanced directives um, that I highly recommend and you highly recommend to be placed in this in this binder in a copy of it. You need to have a copy of your out-of-hospital DNR if you are choosing to have one. And then also you need to have information regarding your primary care physician, any physicians that are treating you for a chronic illness. Let's say you have a pulmonologist or a cardiologist. You want their name, address, and phone number um, in this binder. In this binder, you want to have a current list of all the medications that you're taking, including anything that you take over the counter. And you might take, you might take uh, vitamin D and vitamin C or zinc, which has been highly recommended during COVID. You want to have all that information in your binder. Um, and this is the best way to start because uh, let's say you have an emergency response button, you push that button and the ambulance comes. You want to be able to have that binder and it has to say in case of emergency. And usually uh, if you have all this information put together, the ambulance loves it. The ambulance drivers love it. They are going to take that with you. And because um, sometimes we don't have all our medications, we can't just sweep them up into um, a bag. And it's not always a good idea to do that anyway. But if you have the list already, that's very helpful to the doctors in the emergency room. They know what you're taking and they know um, what to give you and what not to give you because there might be drug interactions. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I took my mom to, um, to, to on a trip to Seattle. My sister sent photographs of all her prescriptions and what, you know, what milligrams when she took them, a prescription of her Medicare card and a couple of other things. She goes, just in case just in case she sent me with all that stuff. I'm like, yes. all right, that's good. We got this, you know, so, you know, but, you know, she's very proactive. Um, you know, we're very proactive, you know, so in what, in what we do. So it's really nice to, you know, to have that information, you know, really, really handy. And so what about um, uh, important people to call and things like that? So if you're by yourself, should, do we want that list of people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe the, the contacts, you know, again, on a separate, another sheet of paper of your medical power of attorney agents, family, anybody else that might need to be notified in the case of emergency? Yes, I, I always recommend um, that you kind of have a few people that are going to be on your team. I call it your team because you never want to be at the hospital alone. Um, so I like that people have a list um, of, of, of people they can call and trust that they trust to hold their truth, um, you know, meaning what are your wishes, that these people know your wishes, that they know you personally, and that they will advocate on your behalf when you become ill. And maybe you can't always um, advocate for yourself during this uh, crisis. You're, you're going to the hospital, you're sick. People don't go to the hospital unless they're very, very sick. And, um, it's also, I like to sometimes have a little synopsis of the individual. Let's say you, your mom has dementia and uh, maybe she um, doesn't like to watch TV. A lot of people, all, the nurses come in and they turn the TV on as a distraction for the patient. And I have a couple patients, they're like, please do not turn the TV on. 
So I like to have a little synopsis. Uh, my mom enjoys um, tea for breakfast, not coffee. Uh, she usually eats uh, oatmeal for breakfast or a bowl of cereal. Um, just a little, like she doesn't like loud music or, um, you know, she doesn't want to watch TV or she does like to watch the prices right, you know. So I always say, please just put a little synopsis of who this person is and what's important to them. Because uh, these nurses are coming in and out, doctors are coming in and out, and we really don't know anything about the patient at all. And so not only people, but who are you and what's important to you uh, is, is also something I like to list in my book. Um, and, uh, and, and then again, to, to have your medical power of attorney or somebody close to you begin to develop a schedule. Who can come and stay with you? Who can come and advocate and maybe, you know, when you're pressing the button and you really have to use the restroom and the nurse is busy or the, they, the hospitals don't even have AIDS anymore. Um, they don't have as many as they used to. So you're pressing the button, you have to use the restroom or something's wrong and it's going to take somebody a long time to get to you. So having somebody there who might be able to get you some water or if you're ambulatory, you can get to the bathroom. They can just be sure that you're safe. Or they can go out of the room and say, hey, this person needs help right now. Yeah. So, <laughs> done that. I've <clears throat> done that before a yeah. lot. And so I've been one of those people, you know, in the hospital with family members. And so, you know, so you're, you're one of our excellent care managers. And, and how do you and your job manage, you know, the clients, all the different doctors. And so especially if they're seeing more than one at a time. And that's an excellent question. When we are in the hospital, as you know, you'll get an attending physician and that person is going to look at you and then say, oh, well, I'm going to make uh, a referral to a cardiologist because you had, uh, you have hypertension and then you came in because you, <clears throat> You have can uh, you have bronchitis, so we're going to have a pulmonologist come in. So all of a sudden, you have five doctors coming in and out of your room, and uh, how do you keep track of that? You know, how do you manage all of the different doctors that are coming in and out of your room? And as you well know, every doctor has their own opinion about what's wrong with you, uh, how we're going to treat you. So. Dr. A comes in and says, oh, well, I think you need X, Y, and Z treatment. And then Dr. B comes in and he doesn't even read what Dr. A says because they're all busy. They're running in and out of your room and they're not really reading your chart. And I know um, that's controversial, but it's true. I have spent years in the hospital as a case manager and sometimes I have to stop the doctors and say, hey, wait a minute, because um, they're busy. Uh, they're seeing a lot of patients and they're in and out of the room and things are a little different than they used to be. Uh, and the nurses don't um, aren't always available to stand at the door and give the doctor a report on you. So, um, you know, the doctors just go in by very minimal uh, information and they come in the room and they're only in there for about five minutes. So it's really hard. 
Um, and I think that's why I want you to have somebody in the room to write down which doctor came in, what they said, to make sure that your questions are answered or that they have questions that they want to ask about your condition. Um, and also, please ask the doctor, can I have your card? Uh, are you a hospitalist or do you have a practice in case you want to see that doctor after you're discharged? So ask for the doctor's card. Ask the doctor, what is your specialization? Because sometimes they don't even say that when they come in the room. And you need to know those things. Um, I also recommend having that um, a, a notebook or a pad of paper with you. So um, the person that's with you or you yourself, if you are alone, to begin to write down what it is that, uh, okay, doctor um, A came in and he is a cardiologist and he said that I have a heart valve problem and he's going to recommend uh, that I have this test and this test because uh, you're not going to remember everything that everybody tells you. And when you're sick, you can't possibly remember everything everybody says. You don't always know um, what they're talking about because they don't always speak our language. And that's an unfortunate part of our healthcare system. Uh, doctors are using the language that they're used to communicating with each other in and communicating with nurses and other professionals. And um, we may not understand what they're saying. And the family often, um, the doctor might say something that the family is having a hard time hearing um, because um, the information is either misunderstood or because it's painful to hear. Um, so if you're writing it down um, when they're saying it, Sometimes you can go back and review what they said. And, you know, you need time for things to sink in at times. If you're critically ill and something very serious is wrong, you may just need time to understand and know this is what they're saying. Um, and, wow, now I have to make some decisions for my mom or my mom has to make some decisions for my dad or, you know, my husband. Um or my wife. So uh, it's, it's oftentimes good to just have a notebook and write down what these doctors say, their name, when they came into the room, and what they had to say. And that way, too, you can tell the other doctor who comes in, hey, Dr. Uh, B, the cardiologist, said, I have a heart valve problem, and you're telling me it's something else. Yeah. I found that the record button on my phone works really well as well yeah. because then I can play it for everybody else that says, what did the doctor say? <laughs> and, um, and so, cause one of the things, you know, when, when COVID hit, I think my mom had to have something done and they wouldn't let anybody else in with her. Mm -hmm. We're like, turn the phone on FaceTime. You don't have to FaceTime FaceTime to look at them, but turn the phone on. So, so other people can hear what the doctor is saying, because my mom is one of those lovely women who will tell you only the good things she heard or only the very bad things she heard and nothing in between. <laughs> and so, yes. 
you know, so you, she's always one that you want to take, you know, take with you. And so I always want to make sure somebody's with her at the time. So. Absolutely. And the other thing, um, it's a little bit generational. I hate to say it, but some of the, our older folks, they trust the doctor explicitly explicitly. So the questions, um, they don't want to question the doctor. Whatever the doctor said is what's going to happen. Um, but my thing is no question is a dumb question. Please ask. And the other person to ask, um, you're going to have, you're going to have a nurse. You're going to have a case manager. If, if the doctor came in and you don't feel comfortable talking to the doctor, talk to your nurse and your case manager. Ask them some questions and they can help guide you because nurses work with the doctor. Um, They help the doctor understand what's going on with you because that nurse sees you throughout the whole entire shift, that whole 12 hours. So when you're discharged from the hospital, you're going somewhere else, uh, I'm assuming, you know, if you're not going home, you know, what kind of things, or maybe you are going home, um, you know, what kind of things should people be aware of? Um, I know they write, you know, they write discharge notes, but some of those don't really correspond to what I thought I heard, you know, them say I was supposed to be doing, you know, so, but I'm one of those people that, too, that I was like one of those old school, I just thought the doctors do everything until my grandfather got ill. And I realized that they truly are making educated guesses. Yes. You know, and that's it, you know, so, um, you know, it was, um, it was a very eye opening experience. So it makes me much more, I question a whole lot more um, to make sure that, you know, and me as a patient when, you know, I'm not very sick that often, but when I am, I always ask a lot more questions, you know, so I think that's good. Um, it's not that they're bad doctors. It's no. just that there's some misconceptions, I think, sometimes about, um, you know, abilities and things like that. But you left, you're leaving the hospital. Now what? <laughs> so uh, generally when you go in, um, you're, um, so it's kind of difficult because there's a lot of levels here of um, of situations. But A lot of people with dementia um, develop what's called hospital psychosis. Uh, Finally, now, uh, especially after COVID, we're talking about um, how to deal with patients with hospital psychosis and how to best manage their care. Uh, So people go in and they have dementia. They begin to develop hospital psychosis. In the old days, they were given a lot of psychotropic medications like Haldol, sleeping aids, and things that only made their psychosis worse. So if your mother, father, or whoever your loved one is, um, has has a uh, dementia diagnosis of some sort, it is really important that you continue to encourage the hospital staff to get that person out of bed, Um, to make sure that they're getting um, the OTPT um, occupational and physical therapist to come in and evaluate them. Uh, Make sure they're getting up out of bed. Uh, Make sure that whatever it is that they're used to during the day, 
um, that they get a routine um, and to discourage the use of any type of psychotropic medications that's not on their medication list. So also let's just say, um, I call it the king and queen chair. So let's say that your mom or dad um, is a typical elderly person. And in the morning, they're pretty independent. Maybe they've been living on their own. Maybe they have a little bit of a caregiver service, maybe not. And they get up and they go to their chair in the morning. They go to the bathroom. Maybe they go to the kitchen and then they sit in their king or queen chair and they watch TV. Maybe they get up again and they uh, go to the restroom and get a little lunch. Then they sit back down. We know now professionally that those people do not do well after hospitalization. And often families get distressed because they realize my mom hasn't been out of bed at the hospital in five days. Now she can't walk. That is true. If you are not active and you are not actively engaged daily, you are not going to pop back from pneumonia in a hospital. You are going to have to have some type of rehabilitation. And there are two types of rehabilitation. One is going to a nursing home, um, skilled nursing, which Medicare covers uh, usually for the first 20 days. And then um, after day 21 is going to be a copay unless you have a secondary insurance. The other one is what's called inpatient rehabilitation. So that's covered by your Medicare and that's part of your hospital uh, Medicare. If you are a relatively healthy person and you are very active and you were totally independent prior to your hospitalization, driving, going to the grocery store, you had an active life and you find yourself having difficulty uh, managing and getting up out of bed, I always tell those people to push, push, push for a physical therapy evaluation in order to go to inpatient rehabilitation. Uh, you will be much better off. It is a much more strenuous rehab scenario. It's generally seven to 14 days and you will come back better to your, better able to manage and you may come back to baseline before you go home. Those patients that um, are going to be rejected by us, by inpatient rehabilitation, are those patients who generally um, have not been active, they have not had a good baseline prior to hospitalization, and um, they're going to need a lot more TLC. Maybe they're going to need antibiotic treatment after their hospitalization. Um, maybe they're going to need wound care. So they're going to likely go to um, a skilled nursing facility. As a family member, you are going to want to go and visit at least three of those facilities. People need to see three facilities in order to make an educated decision on where you want your loved one to go. Um, and you you need to go there and use all of your senses. You need to go and look at these places and see what's happening, smell, 
look at the food, talk to the people and make sure that your loved one is going to be a good fit for that facility because they're going to likely be there for about 20 days. Yeah. And of course, there's always home health and home health care. Just so you know, that's 40 minutes, three times a week, if that of physical and occupational therapy. And if you don't feel that your loved one is going to launch with that kind of therapy, you need to advocate for um, a stronger therapy. We tell clients when they're looking at facilities to go three different times. You want to go during the day, you want to go at night, and you want to go on the weekend. Yes. And you want to talk to family members that have someone in there that has been in there for a little while. Um, because that's your best source of information, current information. Absolutely. So, and um, so I'm trying to get one of my clients moved out of one. Um, I was a little very upset because I was there the other night and they, her dinner, supper, mind you, was a dry tuna sandwich. Um coleslaw, I think, in chips, I mean, in a styrofoam container. I mean, I was like, not only was she horrified, I was horrified. I was like, yeah, that's that, you know, I might can handle a sandwich for lunch, but really, um, it was very disappointing. Yeah, it was very disappointing. And so yeah. I would want someone to have better, you know, way better food than that. And so well, and we know our seniors don't they have poor appetites and after you're sick you have a poor appetite that's not appetizing no it wasn't she didn't eat it you know and the other thing is um a lot of times when um a case manager comes in um you know there's some regulations that you should be aware of uh one is called the medicare choice letter you are they are obligated to give you a choice they cannot tell you where you're going yeah. um, and you, you need to be able to sign this choice letter um, and it's a legal document and you need to make an educated choice. Um, and the other piece um, of legal documentation in the Medicare system is that um, uh, is the Medicare letter. And um, if you feel uh, strongly that you, um, are being discharged too soon or your loved one's being discharged too soon and you don't feel like uh, you got adequate care, or they're not safe or healthy enough to go home, uh, you can call the uh, Medicare uh, number on that letter and you're supposed to be signing that letter prior to discharge. You sign one on admission and so you have that paper on admission with the phone number on it for the Medicare representative. And then you're signing one at discharge. You can call that number. It's a 1-800 number. And then um, you can tell that person that you don't feel that your loved one or you received adequate Medicare care and you're not ready for discharge. And then what will happen is the Medicare representative will contact the case management department and they have to provide your uh, medical record in order to um, ask to have Medicare doctors ascertain whether your uh, discharge is appropriate. So Andrea, if somebody wants to find you, how do they find you? Yes. Uh, so I am available. Um, my phone number is 281-910-0930. Uh, 
you can give me a call. Uh, try to answer my phone as much as possible unless I'm with another patient. Um, of course, you can email me at amsady at gmail.com. And I have a website, a to, G, a to Z jerrycare.com. Uh, you can get a hold of me any of those ways. And of course, uh, Kim can always get a hold of me. <laughs> uh, and I'm happy to help. A lot of people do call me just for consultation when their loved one is at the hospital and they're just having a difficult time finding a place for them to go that's appropriate. Um, I do run to the hospital, do hospital consultations and help you figure out what's best for your loved one. Um, and I'm happy to do it because I want everybody to get good care. That's the goal. Yeah. Be Most as independent as possible. All right. Thank you, Andrea. I appreciate having you on the show and, um, and you have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time too, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice. 